there's uh, so many things in terms of our singing that, that are important because as we sing, we're not really just singing amongst ourselves. We're singing, first of all, to God. He's the one who's receiving our praises. But the Bible also tells us that we're teaching one another as we sing. So the book of Colossians talks about with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're making melody in our hearts to God, and we're also instructing one another. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And even just the, the ways in which uh, these songs today have really reflected uh, on the beauty of the resurrection and the beauty of what God's doing uh, to rescue the lost and to work in our lives to draw us closer to him. And I think as a church, one of the things that's important for us to do periodically is, is to think about why are we doing what we're doing? You ever wondered that? Like, why am I doing this? You know, it's very easy for us to kind of get into empty habits. <clears throat> this time right now can be like that, right? We can kind of just go together. What am I doing? I'm going to church. Why? Because I go to church. Yeah, well, why do you go to church? Because that's what I do. Okay, well, what are we doing by what we're doing? What, what's, what's motivating that? You know, Jesus would talk about motives in several places. We find that in the Sermon on the Mount and other places as well. And, and so we want to, as a church, make sure we're clear about why we're doing what we're doing. And if, if you've been here for a while, you've heard us talk about how we're about growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. That's, that's our mission. That's what we're about doing. Uh, but last year, we took a lot of time to kind of talk through uh, our values as a church. You know, the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why, why are we pursuing that? And so we didn't just kind of come up with a bunch of things and put them on a piece of paper and go, great, that'll work, and just kind of stick it in a notebook somewhere. Instead, we actually got together. We had different groups of people talking together. We asked questions of the congregation. And as we labored through this prayerfully together, there were, there were essentially four, four values that came out of that time that we spent. And we, we talked about how because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we value, first of all, life-giving truth. In other words, the word of God, the gospel, changes lives and brings life to the dead. And that's why we're committed to being a gospel church. And we want to spend time in God's word. That's why we do this right now. We want to make sure we're not just going through the motions. We need the spirit of God to, to work in what he's written here to restore our souls, to cause us to see God, to, to thrive in him. Um, but secondly, we also saw that uh, our values would include life-changing love. So it's not just enough to know we're not the church that says, teach me, but don't touch me. No, we're, we're, we gather together for the purpose of loving God and loving one another. And, and, and frankly, if we don't have life-changing love, we probably have not experienced the life-giving truth of the gospel. And then the other thing we, we found that was a key value of ours is sincere, sincere community. Uh, we, we don't want to be the place where we just walk in the door and you leave. You walk in the door, you leave. We don't want to be the place where like, you, you kind of vicariously live the Christian life by watching everybody else do it, while you just kind of walk over that front threshold and then live the rest of your life however you want to live it, without being connected with God's family. We find in the New Testament that when you come to Christ, if you've received him by faith, you're brought to him and you're brought into his family. You're brought into a community. And by the way, that means in sincere community, we anticipate that there's going to be conflict. <laughs> it means it's messy. We anticipate that. We anticipate disagreements. We also expect people to deal with conflict in a biblical way. And we work through those issues because we're a family. So it's, it's messy, but we would also say it's a mess worth making. Uh, and, then, and then another thing we found as a core value for us was, is calling those far from God near to him. And, and I want to just feature that for a moment because it's not enough to say, well, yeah, we value that. We need to see it demonstrated, right? That's what we, each of these things we, we wanted to work through. How, is that, how does that show up, actually? 
in our life as a church. And so as we worked this through, we saw, first of all, it's shown or demonstrated uh, in our church family by diligent prayer for open gospel opportunities in our daily lives because we love our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, and friends. Uh, that's what we do. And we do, we spend a lot of time doing that together. Uh, we, we have a, even a, a, a way in which we have a prayer happening throughout the week, and that's, that's critical to us. Another way we saw that demonstrated, and we see that demonstrated, is intentionally having gospel conversations with people in our lives who are far from God. Uh, we're not content just to kind of go to work and work and then pretend like there's no difference between us and other people. At the same time, we're not trying to walk around and, and zorro everybody with the Bible all the time. But in between those two things, we want to have intentional conversations with people that don't know Jesus. Another way we see that demonstrated is by focusing our time and resources toward the needs of people outside the church. And, and we, we, we do that in various ways. Um, Certainly, we have uh, the Deacons Fund that is continually helping people in need as they come up the hill. Uh, we're, we're, we partner also with various ministries in order to, to care for others outside. We want to keep doing that. Uh, we also want to be a place, and we um, are a place, really, where we welcome those who come back to Christ. We, we want people to come to Jesus here at Clayton Valley Church, but we also want those who have walked away to find themselves coming back, and that this is a church with open arms, ready to receive them. And if that's you this morning, we're really glad you're here. And we want, to know that, want you to know that you're welcome. And, and we're happy to work things through, talk things through. Um, we also uh, see this calling those far from God near to him by our ongoing support for local gospel ministries that minister to the homeless and needy in our community. And, and that, that really brings us to why we are d- embarking upon uh, what we're doing on Friday night. Um, it's because, again, we're calling those far from God near to him. We value that. And because we value that, we're taking these steps. And so uh, if you haven't seen it out there in the foyer area, and Chris mentioned it earlier, go ahead and sign up and volunteer to bring something to, to make a lunch. We still need supplies. Oh, full disclosure, there's something missing on the form. So if you're like, wait, the form's filled. No, it's not. There's a box that's not on there that should be on there, and that is for this, chips. Maybe you need an excuse to buy chips. Buy a bag for this, buy, you know, it's a, go get the little, the, the package that has the little tiny bags of chips in it, right? We're going to need 40 of them. So if you're going to do that, right on there somewhere, just write, hey, I've got chips, and tell us how many bags you're bringing. We need 40. Um, and then, you know, get some bags for yourself, too, while you're at it, right? You, <laughs> We call that a win-win. That's a win-win. So you can do that as well. We also have a space there to sign up to uh, help construct the lunches or make them or build them or whatever you want to call it. We're going to have an assembly line going Friday night. So um, anyway, that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're not just making lunches to make lunches. We're not just doing this because you're supposed to. We're doing this because we want to be a part of calling those far from God near to him. And we want to do that by caring for people's physical needs and spiritual needs, both. There's so many places that'll do the physical needs, but don't deal with spiritual needs at all. There's other places that'll focus on spiritual needs, and yet there's actually, sadly, a neglect of physical needs. And the Bible calls to both. So hope to see you on Friday night, 7 o'clock downstairs. And if you've brought supplies, by the way, there are boxes down there in the kitchen. Well, there's one box in the kitchen on the counter. It says Hope 680 on it. You can just put that, the supplies in there. 
And then uh, if your item is a refrigerated item, open the fridge. There in the kitchen, there's a big sign that says Hope 680. It's a shelf just for those supplies. So if you're donating supplies but not able to join us Friday, come by any time during the week and put the supplies in either of those two places. And we'll look forward to seeing what God does through that. Well, we're continuing in, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, I don't know about you, but as I get older, this might surprise you, but I am getting older. You're looking at me like, yeah, Chris, we've watched. We get it. Yeah. You know, something, something becomes more, more clear and clearer. Sometimes our bodies are kind of a pain, aren't they? Aren't they? You know what I mean? Like, you're kind of like, like, if you were with us many years ago, you recall there was a time when I didn't use an iPad to preach. I had this stuff, it was called paper. Maybe, and, and I had notes and I would actually flip through them. But guess what happened to me? Yeah, Andrew Sanders had the great idea of inviting me to a youth event to play football with the young people. Last time I did that. Why? Because I tore my rotator cuff, okay? And um, again, if you were here, you'll recall that because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, I, I couldn't turn pages. So that's, I went to the iPad because I could not turn pages. My, my, I was like, for my first point. <laughs> Second, I mean, I, this thing could not move. So, but, but, Again, I understand the body is created beautifully. Certainly, you, you, we see that, right? You, you see a ballet performance. They're, they're beautiful. Or you hold a baby, right? It's beautiful. The, the psalmist tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Those are all true things. But again, sometimes our bodies are a pain. And so you can see why the Greek philosophers of the first century, for many of them, as they were kind of shaping the religion of their own minds, a lot of them would just ditch the body after it died. Because they're going, Psh. Why would you want the body? Once it's dead and buried, good riddance. Who needs it? We're going to move on to a more enlightened existence. Body free. And so what happened in Corinth is that as some people came to Jesus and as those philosophies were going around in the ancient world in Greece, many of them were going, you know, I'm glad that Jesus is my savior. I'm glad he's forgiven us of our sins. I'm glad he's the son of God. I'm glad he's risen. And risen forever, but my body being resurrected, no thanks. Nope, can't be. Bodies are a pain, they're just baggage, and, and, and once they're in the ground, let's just leave them there. And so the apostle Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he's saying there's some things you've got to get right at the outset. And, he, and we saw this last week. There are two truths that are critical for you to understand. First of all, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to all kinds of witnesses, hundreds of them. And then he goes on to say, we preach that Christ crucified and resurrected. And now he's going to go on to say, because Jesus is raised, all who are in Christ will also be raised. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all who believe in him, those two are inseparable things. They're connected. And so we need to live in light of this reality. And so I encourage you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to pick it up in verse 12. In light of God's word, would you please stand and follow along 
as I read. First Corinthians 15, begin with verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God to the God and Father, excuse me, of Sorry, he hands over the kingdom to God, the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subject to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us, that you would cause us to see the beautiful reality of the resurrection. Help us to grasp how all who believe in you have from you eternal life, and and that all who believe in you as Jesus has been raised, so in him we too will be raised. This is a sure promise. It cannot be thwarted or derailed. It will come to pass, and we praise you that this is the demonstration even of the truth of the very gospel we've received from you. And so we look to you now to guide and keep and work and cause us to become the people you want us to be for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So we find in this passage that we must live in light of the resurrection of in Christ. And the question would be, why is that? And the first thing we find, find it's because of the logic of resurrection. We find that in verses 12 to 19. Uh, you'll notice through that section there's If, then, if, then, if, then. It's a bunch of logical constructs. It's an argument that Paul is bringing forward. And and he's he's really saying that if Christ is preached that he he rose, that means to preach Christ is resurrection. Notice that in the first phrase there. Now, if Christ is preached, he's referring back to verse 11. We preach these things to you, that Jesus died according to our sins, and he rose again according to the scriptures. And, and, and what Paul is going on to say here is if Christ is preached in this way, 
and he's been raised from the dead, do you not see the connection between his resurrection and all who believe in him? They're, 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 they're a thread that cannot be broken. They're, they're, they're something that's, that cannot be separated. It's, it's an indivisible reality. As you are in Jesus, as Christ rose, so you share in that resurrection. You partake of that resurrection. Why? Because of Jesus and his fulfillment of that. And so Paul goes on to say, kind of entertain, hey, what, what are the consequences? What comes about if those who die are not raised? If those who die in Christ are not raised? And he, he essentially brings about several conclusive arguments. The first being this, without resurrection, our faith is empty. Find that in verse 14. Your faith is in vain. That means there's nothing to it. It's got no substance to it. It's just kind of like the wind that blows around. If there is no resurrection, there's, your faith doesn't have any real meaning at all. Um, why would that be? Well, because you're believing in Jesus, and yet the reality is God is the one who created us, who made us, whose idea was physical existence. It wasn't ours. It was the Lord's. And so as he's redeeming his people, he's not just redeeming your soul, he's redeeming your body. The whole you, all of you. And, and what he's saying is if there's no resurrection, it essentially means that your faith has no actual proof. The, the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ and the resultant connection that we have with him and the anticipation of sharing in that resurrection is the foundational reality of the Christian existence. As a matter of fact, the life we live now, we live in resurrection of power from the age to come from the Spirit indwelling us. Uh, Paul will write elsewhere that the one who raised Jesus from the dead, his spirit who dwells in you is going to give life to your mortal body. It means that you're living now in that power, but it also means you're anticipating that day of resurrection. So without resurrection, your faith is empty. Secondly, without resurrection, our testimony about Christ is a lie. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God if there is no resurrection. Because what we're saying is, God rose Jesus from the dead. And if the dead are not raised, then he didn't. Um, thirdly, he would say, without resurrection, not only is our faith empty and our testimony about Christ is a lie, but our forgiveness from God is a delusion. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Whoa. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the demonstration that the payment was made in full. That's what shows that God received that substitutionary payment for sin. It's kind of like, the, you know, if you, if you get a bill and you pay the bill and you get a receipt back saying paid in full, there it is. So if someone goes, hey, what, you got to pay this again. It's like, whoa, time out. I paid it already right here. That's what the resurrection of Christ is. Payment fully received. Paul goes on to say that not only is our faith empty if there's no resurrection, and our testimony about Christ is a lie if there's no resurrection, and our forgiveness from God is a delusion if there's no resurrection, but sadly, death wins if there's no resurrection. Look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ 
have perished. That's it. That's the end of everything. It's over. Um, That's the thing where, as Paul's been even remarking throughout this entire epistle, there is the hope of, of the return of Christ, there is the hope of our being united to with him fully in resurrected bodies in his kingdom forever. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then that's it. It's over. Death wins. And then the final thing that Paul would say without resurrection, not only is our faith empty, our testimony about Christ is a lie, our forgiveness from God is a delusion, not only does death win, but lastly, if there is no resurrection, our hope is shallow and it's to be pitied. Look at verse 19. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Uh, this life only, it's an interesting phrase. In other words, if, if your hope and your faith is all based upon what's happening now, as if this is it. And Paul's going, that's not, that's not a, an act of enlightenment. That's not a you kind of getting it more. If anything, that's something to be pitied. Because you actually think that this is all there is. And as much as we would never say those things, we would never say, you're not going to have a believer stand up and go, that's right, I think this is all there is. But brothers and sisters, don't we live like that Sometimes. Aren't there times that you know, the way that we interact, maybe, maybe with the people in our lives, or, or the way our, our, we're gripped with anxiety, or the way that we uh, conduct ourselves, maybe, maybe uh, at work, maybe, maybe we've got to get this promotion no matter what. Again, we're going to do anything we can to get it. Or, or maybe there's got to be some sort of financial accomplishment and you're going to do anything you can. You have to do that. And all of those things, when they drive us, when those are the things pushing us around, when we're being pulled and we're being overtaken by, by all of these kind of here and now preoccupations, essentially what we're saying is, this is all there is. And no, we don't believe that. So theologically over here, I don't believe that. But my belief is not connecting with how I'm actually living. So we need to live in light of resurrection in Christ. And it's not only because of the logic of resurrection, but also because of the pledge of resurrection. And we find that in verses 20 through 28. Notice what he says. But now, there's a contrast, Christ has been raised from the dead. Whew. That's a good thing. Well, by the way, he already proved that, didn't he? Last week, when we were in verses 1 through 11, that's what he, he at length, he demonstrated that by all the witnesses that, that, that uh, beheld Jesus risen. Uh, you'll recall last week we, we, um, we referenced cold case Christianity. You know, and that, that guy who was a, a detective, he was a cold case detective. His whole job was essentially what? Where is the body? That's what he did. He was a skeptic. And then he decided to apply his kind of cold case abilities to was Jesus raised or not? And he came to the, what he would call an an unassailable conclusion that yes, Jesus rose. So Paul's already established that. 
And now he's referring back to it and saying, Jesus did rise from the dead. But, but notice he goes on to say something else in verse 20, and this is key. The first fruits of those who are asleep. What's this idea of first fruits? First fruits would be what you would bring forward to demonstrate the rest of the crop. So if you were in a business relationship and you were about to you know, say, hey, I've got, I've got an orchard here. We've got, we've got a lot of peaches coming up. I'll show you. Here's the first fruit, see? And more is coming. It would also be used in, a, in, in the sense of uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the idea being you would bring to God the first fruits. But it's the first fruits of what? The rest of the harvest. That's the point. There's a relationship. And so what he's saying here is Jesus rising from the dead. Get this. He's the first fruits. Meaning, again, his resurrection is inextricably connected to the resurrection of all who trust in him. He's the first fruits. In other words, God's made a pledge. And he's going to come through on that pledge of resurrection. This int- it's, when he says, now Christ has been raised, that, that's, that's a perfect tense verb, which means not only did Jesus rise on a certain day in history, but he remains risen. He stands risen. And so the resurrection of Jesus is truly a pledge and a proof that all of his people will also rise. By the way, he says he's the first fruits of what? Of those who are asleep. Uh, you recall back in verse 18, he used that same phrase, asleep. Why? Because that's how Paul, in all of his writings, refers to believers who have died. He refers to them as having fallen asleep. Now, by the way, he's not teaching some sort of soul sleep that some people take that and goes, so your, your soul is kind of in this you know, unaware state for a time. No. No, we're told to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? We're told in Scripture that's not the case. What he's saying here is for the believer, because of the resurrection, when a believer dies, he or she, in that moment, it's as if they're just lying down temporarily to rest. Because when the resurrection comes, they're getting up again. That's what he's talking about. And in some ways, I think, you know, brothers and sisters, we should think about that. Do you realize when you go to bed each night, if you're a believer, if you are a believer, as you go to bed each night, in some ways, do you realize you're kind of rehearsing for that moment when you will transition over the threshold into eternity? You ever think of that? When you lay down. I don't know about you, but when I'm laying down, there's just different prayers that are coming to mind at times, you know. Um, if I'm really stressed out, I think I've shared this with you before. If I'm really stressed, my prayer is something along these lines. Lord, thank you that you can do more while I'm asleep than I can do while I'm awake. That's a good prayer. I, and I, I believe me, I do that. If you... If Janet hears me out loud when I'm laying down, says, Lord, thank you. That I'm usually doing it silently because I want her to sleep, but I'm like, thank you that you can. Um, but another, another one of those prayers is just, wow, Lord, you know, this could be. This very well could be that transition. I, we don't know. You don't know what that's going to be like or when it's going to happen. But isn't it merciful of God, too, in some ways, for the believer? Again, for an unbeliever, it's a different story. 
For an unbeliever, death is not referred to as sleep. If you are here today and you have not received Christ, death is a horrifying moment. It is the moment into which you will step into a place of judgment, wrath. So again, if you're here today and you've not yet received Christ, we would want to talk to you about that. Today is the day where you can turn away from your sin, the things you've been trusting in for life, and you can turn to Jesus for forgiveness. And Jesus says that all who come to me, he will gladly receive. That invitation's open to you today. But again, for a believer, when you're laying down, it very well could be that you're just rehearsing for that moment, that time. And that's a beautiful thing to think about. And that's why Paul uses that term. So notice, he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. Those in Jesus who have died. And there's great comfort to be found there because it's based upon God's promise. And God's promises are always true. The pledge of resurrection... As Paul is describing this pledge from God, the first fruits concept, he then goes into a beautiful description of Adam, the first Adam, and Christ, the second Adam. Now, in the book of Romans, he unpacks that even more, and I would encourage you to look at that in Romans chapter 5. But here, what Paul brings out is that all in Adam die. So all people who are born, they're in Adam. And because of Adam's sin... And, and, and his rebellion against God, the consequence of that, what did God say? You know, if you eat of this fruit, you'll die. Certainly spiritual death, but physical death as well. But notice in verse 22, or sorry, verse 21, he says, by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. So here we go. We got two, two men. And then he goes on, who are the two men? Verse 22, as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See what's happening? One brought death, and those who are in him, those who are, are, are of his progeny, who are his descendants, die. But then notice, all in Christ will be made alive. That's passive, by the way. You receive this life. It's a gift. And then... You might think from a, well, a way all will be made alive. Okay, that must mean that everyone is going to be saved and given eternal life, right? Because if all in Adam die, and then all in Christ are made alive, it must be, universalism must be true. It must be all. And uh, Paul qualifies that, though. He goes, yeah, don't, don't go there. Notice verse 23. Each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are... Christ at his coming. There you go. What's the, what's the all of verse 22? It's described by verse 23. All who are Christ at his coming. That's the all. And then comes the end. And then you have this, this beautiful description of really God's kingdom coming to fruition as, as the kingdom is handed over to God the Father. And so Christ's return brings the end of the present world as he finally eliminates all powers that oppose God um, and, and Jesus rules. And, and I, I do believe he rules this earth. I believe there's a thousand-year reign of, of Christ. The millennial kingdom is a real thing because he is fulfilling as the second Adam what the first Adam didn't do. The first Adam did not rule this earth. 
Jesus, the second Adam, will rule this earth. However, there's more to come. Because eventually, as the book Revelation will describe, there's coming a new heavens and a new earth. But, but the point would be, the kingdom is given to God, and then we find also that he reigns until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there is a process of Jesus reigning and all of his enemies being put under his feet. And notice verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. Isn't that beautiful? Get this, because of Jesus, because of his victorious life, substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, because of the work of Christ, death dies. We find here the death of death because of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Verses 27 and following describe it even more, just all things being put under his feet and, and we find all things are in subjection to him. Uh, there's a qualifier that Paul puts in. He, I, it might be that as Paul would preach these things out and about, there were different people who would respond back to him and say, hey, Paul, what about this? And sometimes he'll deal with those com- kind of objections or counter-arguments or, or even when people would distort things. So it appears in verse 28, he's saying, um, by the way, when I'm saying subjected all things, I'm not saying that God is being subjected, God the Father is subjecting himself to the Son. He's like, I don't mean that by all. And so he kind of clarifies that. When all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be in all. So he, God will be all in all. So he's essentially describing kind of the inner Trinitarian workings where the Son is subject to the Father. And yet, notice the end of verse 28, God is all in all. So God, he's doing a wordplay on the word all here. All things are subjection to him. All things, all things, and then God himself is all in all. In other words, all glory, all honor, all power, majesty, reign, worship, it's all God's. It's all his. So we find here, again, that we need to live in light of this. And so, so here's the question. Do you live in light of this? Now, this is like, okay, this is really heady stuff. What are we, well, yeah, it is in some ways. But in other ways, the question would be this. When you wake up in the morning, when that alarm clock goes off, you know, you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm still here. Okay, I'm still here. All right, Lord, what do you want for this day? And then, is there a life that we lead in that moment of confidence in God, in his plan, in his return, in his reign, in the sureness of the resurrection? Does that motivate us as our legs swing out and hit the floor that day? Because I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times my legs swing out and hit the floor and I'm like, Oh. And by the way, I'm not saying that the resurrection means you wake up and you're chipper in the morning every day. No, that's annoying. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that to the people around you. Don't. Like just, there's a proverb that says that he who's too chipper in the morning deserves to be, I don't know, put in another room. I'm not sure what it is. I forgot the proverb exactly. You know, you look it up. I, but, but don't do that. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is as we approach the day, We do that in light of the day of Christ's return. It's a sure thing. Your resurrection, if you're in Christ today, your resurrection is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus. And so as we embark upon whatever the day holds, are we living in light of that? 
Because the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the believer are inseparable. So we need to live in light of the resurrection that we have in Christ because of the logic of resurrection, the pledge of resurrection, and also because of the risk of resurrection. Paul talks about that in verses 29 through 32. And we come to a, a challenging statement here. Look at verse 29. It says this, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Okay, this is, a, this is a passage that is taken and taken out of context, frankly, by, by the Mormon church, for sure. They actually have ceremonies whereby they will be buried, I'm sorry, buried, baptized for dead people, like in their place. And, uh, and so if you look at this passage, you're going, well, what? what's Paul talking about here? And there are various solutions that, that believe me, tons of trees have been killed on this passage, okay? Just want you to know that. Lots of them. Um, but, but some views that are there would be, one, uh, the Corinthian church was doing this. So, so, so somehow, perhaps people came to faith in Jesus, and they died soon afterwards before they had a chance to be baptized. So that some in Corinth, perhaps, it said, decided to get baptized in their place. And, and, and Paul is simply asking the question here, why are you doing that, Corinthian church? He's not condoning the act. He's not condemning the act. He's just, it's a, it's a bizarre practice that they were pursuing. He's not addressing that at all. He's saying, but, but yeah, since you are doing that, why? Um, I, I don't think that's a great view because, first of all, it is a really bizarre practice. Even then, it would be. And with the significance of baptism in the first century, especially, without question, Paul would have confronted that. Uh, baptism was a very, very important moment whereby someone went from the threshold, over the threshold from the church, or from the world into the church, right? It was a key marker. So I doubt that's what it is. Uh, another would say, well, he's just quoting what they've said. So that's happened earlier in the letter. Maybe Paul's just quoting what they've said. Um, the problem with that is I don't, I don't really see the grammatical markers that ought to be here if he was doing that. So that, that doesn't seem to be it either. Um, so what, what is it? I'm, after spending time on this, I, I really do believe the solution is found uh, in that word for. <laughs> so if you look at verse 29, otherwise, what will those who are baptized for the dead? And, and I think that that, that word, um, it, it, the way it's used in Greek, it can also be used or be translated in this way, because of. Because of. So, it could read this way. Otherwise, what will those who are baptized because of the dead? Uh, notice the next phrase. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized because of them? So what's he talking about? He'd be talking about the fact that there are many in the first century who were witnessing people being martyred. They were dying for their faith. They were taking a stand. If you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, there, were, there was a whole entire legion of centurions, Roman centurions who had come to faith. They would not bow to Caesar anymore. And they were executed. And, and let's say people were watching that and they're going, what? Those, those people give up their lives because they believed in this Jesus. Wow. It must be true. I'm believing. And if you believe, you're baptized. So they're being baptized because of the witness of the martyrs. Uh, I think that's what's happening here. And I think the context would lead to that because notice what the next phrase is, what Paul says. Look at verse 30. Paul leaves that passage and he says, why are we also in danger every hour? 
what's Paul in danger of? Martyrdom. Without question. Um, And then the passage goes on. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Again, look at verse, the beginning of verse 32. Wild beasts in Ephesus. Who has to face wild beasts in Ephesus? The martyrs. We have accounts repeatedly in Fox's Book of Martyrs where believing men and women would be thrown in to face the beasts because they would not deny Christ. So, I think what he's saying here is, you know so many were baptized because of the dead. So many were baptized as they witnessed the martyrs and they embraced Jesus by faith. But here's the thing, if there is no resurrection, what's the point of them being baptized because of the martyrs? And then again, in verse 30, why bother being in danger every hour? And of course, Paul's life was in danger constantly. Many people were after him. Verse 32, the tone of that seems to be, uh, if I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. It's similar with the phrases we found in 1 Corinthians 13. So I think it's a hypothetical. If I were to be thrown in to be with wild beasts, why bother if there's no resurrection? So if the dead are not raised, why are we putting our lives in constant danger? And that's why it's the risk of resurrection. When you believe in the resurrection, when you follow Christ in that, the truth is you are taking a risk. And it could cost you. It could even cost you your life. Our brothers and sisters right now in other places of the world, they see this all the time. I know for us, where we live right now, at this time at least, we don't face the same pressure. But understand that martyrdom and in and, and, and following Jesus, it is not a thing of the past by any stretch. There's more persecution of believers today in, on planet Earth than there has been in any other time in history. So there's a risk to believing in resurrection. So the question that we need to ask is this, will we live with courage in the face of this risk? I mean, I think of, for us, how often do we shy away from having those conversations with people because we're not risking our lives. We're fearful of personal rejection. Really? You so need to be accepted by other people that you're going to shrink back from sharing the life-giving truth about Jesus? Yeah, there's a risk. And you know what? I, I believe for us here, we're going to be facing more risk in the years ahead. As much as at this time we're saying, yeah, well, persecution doesn't happen. Frankly, a lot of times that word persecution is used amongst American Christians, and I feel like it's an insult to our brothers and sisters around the world who actually are persecuted. Let's be very careful how we use that term. Political preference is not the same thing as persecution. We've got people that are literally being thrown in jail. We, there are 
men and women, brave men and women who are being tortured and some who are losing their lives. That's persecution. But when we believe in the resurrection, huh, there's a risk. Will we take it? We must live in light of the resurrection that we have in Christ because of the logic of resurrection, the pleasure of resurrection, the risk of resurrection, and lastly, the gravity of resurrection. Find this in verses 33 and 34. It's a warning. He is, he's warning them. He's saying, come back to your senses. Wake up. Don't be deceived, he says. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, what's the bad company there? Well, in verse 32, when he talks about the wild beast that he could be facing in Ephesus with martyrdom, notice how he ended that verse. If the dead aren't raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul's essentially saying there, if there is no resurrection, you may as well just take your whole life and party. Just party. Because there is nothing else. You might as well. So in verse 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Is that what's what's happening? That's possible. That that could be what's going on. Uh, It's also possible that that this idea of being sober after drunkenness isn't, in fact, you know, literal drunkenness, though it could be. It might also be the idea of just come to your senses and and stop falling for this, this... deceived mindset that there is no resurrection. It could well be that for those who deny the resurrection in their lives, they essentially are walking around not in their senses, not thinking rightly. And they need to sober up. So that's why he says in verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. When Paul says, be sober-minded, he's like, literally, wake up, see what's happening with your life, see what happens when you just deny the resurrection and what what it means and the way you live in a daily way. He's also establishing, when he says, stop sinning, he's saying, look, this is a foundational truth. Uh, We spent many, many weeks in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and we talked about how those were a tier two issue. Let's face it, the resurrection of Jesus, that's not a tier two issue. That's a tier one issue. To deny the resurrection of Jesus and to deny the resulting resurrection interwoven from, for all those who believe in him, to deny the interconnected nature of the resurrection of Jesus and those who believe in him is to deny the faith, is to not be a, a believer. And so boldly he's saying, no, look to what Christ has done. Look forward to the resurrection. Live your life in light of that. And, 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 and when those thoughts or those ways in which you get confused or distorted from thinking rightly about the resurrection, rightly about the age to come, rightly about Christ's return, rightly about your coming bodily resurrection with a new body just like Christ's, when those things go, go far from your mind, certainly you are more apt to fall into sin. Certainly you're more apt to think of sin lightly. And Paul's saying, wake up. 
Do you have a saving relationship with God or not? So Paul's being very blunt, but he's saying live awake to what's really at stake here. When we live in light of the resurrection, we find that the re- resurrection really exposes little things as little things, doesn't it? What, what's, what was, you know, your, some of the pressing things that you thought were the, the major hurdles of the week? And for some of you, it was grave. It was serious. It was hard. There are people in our congregation who are facing terminal illness. There are people who are facing serious financial struggles. Like they're literally wondering, the ends aren't meeting and I've got another month coming. Those are hard things. But in light of resurrection, what happens when we see that clearly? It doesn't take away the problems. Certainly it helps us care for one another in a more effective way, doesn't it? When we see a brother or sister in that place, we want to get in and help. And by the way, that happens all the time. I can't even tell you how that happens around here. Because, uh, you know, there's confidentiality and, and I don't want to ruin the person's reward, you know? If you find out about it, then somehow Jesus is like, if you do it in front of people, then that's all, that's the reward you're going to get. But it happens a lot. But the resurrection exposes the other things that we get so caught up in too, right? The, the trivial things. I can't believe how easy I am just sucked into, this is so important. And then usually it's Janet that says, dude, really? I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's true. You're right. You're right. Seeing resurrection causes us to understand those things. And then also in trials, too. Someone said this to me this week, and I just had to write it down. I took this down, but think about it. The resurrection molds temporary loss into eternal gain. It does. Even when we experience those things, and they're hard, and this doesn't just take away any feeling of loss or sadness or sorrow. The Bible is filled with the full gamut of human emotions. I, I, tragically, today, it's almost like you're most spiritual if you're like this all the time. No. There's imprecatory psalms. So they were sung in the, in the gathering of God's people. But when we see those tragedies or those temporary losses or, or whatever those things are in light of resurrection, it just clarifies. It's almost like a, like you think of the Rosetta Stone, right? The Rosetta Stone was this thing, the, the tablet, and you could use it to translate. That's really what the saying Rosetta Stone is. You can translate anything using this device kind of thing. In many ways, resurrection is God's provision of a Rosetta Stone for existence. When we see it, when we live in light of it, because it's true, Whatever those things are that we're, we're experiencing, be it temporary loss, be it more significant trials, be it little things, be it massive things, we need to live awake to the resurrection. 
Why? Because in it we see clearly our salvation is sure. We are not still in our sins. The lamb who was slain is risen. He's standing at God's right hand. He intercedes now for us before God. We don't know how to pray as we, could, we should, we're told in Romans 8. But, but Jesus intercedes and the Spirit of God intercedes for us. We stand before God justified in Christ. In other words, the gavel falls. God looks at you in Jesus and says, not guilty. No condemnation. And nothing can separate us from God's love. Height, depth, angels, principalities, things present, things to come. Death itself. Nothing separates us from God's love. And so let's learn to live in light of the resurrection. God is preparing us for Resurrection Sunday, obviously. I did not time these verses to be here. If anything, I would have pushed them back to Resurrection Sunday. Would have saved me a lot of time in prep. But God wanted us here now. So let's prepare for that day that we celebrate. Most of all, because we're preparing for the great day. All the dead in Christ will be raised. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would cause these truths to be anchored to our hearts. May we draw near to you. May we see by your grace the fact that the resurrection is intimately connected with all who have come to Jesus. That your resurrection is sure and all who are in you will also rise. Because your resurrection and the resurrection of the believer are inseparable. We thank you for this and we ask that you would just cause us this day and every day you give us between now and that great day that we would live in light of this truth. We pray in Jesus' name, the risen one. Amen. We now come to a time of celebrating the Lord's table. And if you open your bulletin, you'll find in the middle there a little sheet that, that has some different prayers and, and different ways of uh, understanding even just how to approach the table, depending on, on where you're at right now. But I, I would just like us to think for a moment on the fact that Jesus gave up his body. He said, when he passed out that bread, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And what he's saying is, as I am sacrificing myself voluntarily, I want you to remember what I did. And, and I don't know what kind of week you had. I don't know what kind of month or year you're having. But I will guarantee you this. Wherever you're at and whatever you're facing, Jesus right now wants you to remember what he did. His sacrifice is what pays for completely all of your sin. If you're in Jesus, past, present, future. And we know that for a fact that it was 
a payment that was made because Jesus himself rose from the dead. So let's go ahead and open the container. And just for a moment in silence, let's confess our sin to God, the ways in which we have not lived in light of who he is and what he's done. And then in a moment, we'll partake together. Lord, we want to give you thanks and praise for the sacrifice you willingly made for sinners like us. We thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread. And when you had given thanks, you broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we want to remember right now, Lord, because we tend to forget. You who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in you. So we remember and we give you thanks and we confess to you our sin. And we also confess that your payment has been made in full. Amen. Let's take it together. Rejoice in that Jesus drank down the cup of God's wrath. Andrew mentioned that earlier as we were singing. That chalice, that cup. The prophets of old would describe God's wrath as a chalice that those who were under his wrath would be forced to drink. And Jesus in Gethsemane is praying even in light of that and saying, I'm going to drink down God's cup of wrath. I will drink it down to the dregs, which meant the bottom of the cup, the, the stuff that floats around at the bottom. I'm drinking it all. Fully, God exhausted his wrath on Christ. God forsook his only begotten son so that all who are in him would never be forsaken. So as we remember the cup that Jesus drank in our place by the shedding of his blood, let's give thanks. Amen.